Good morning. This is Hacker Mike coming at you with a new episode of the live stream call-in show where you can call me, but you won't, but you might. So the number to dial is six, area code one for United States, 609 429 4144. That's 609-429-4144. And <clears throat> you can call me and leave me a voicemail and I will play it on the show or add it to the show. But um, <clears throat> most of our show is not really about the uh, call-ins because we don't really get any. But I am trying to promote that. But this is the new live stream format where we are recording live segments so it's a period <clears throat> it's a regular segment upload format so i'll upload these uh, <clears throat> segments as i walk this morning and i'll post them and append them to the show so you can just refresh it and get and pick up where you left off So we'll see how that works. I don't know if the podcast players actually uh, let you view the segments or the chapters and go between them. Um, But if they do, let me know and I'll name them better. Right now they're mostly named with timestamps. All right. Well, let's kick this off and I'm going to listen to some podcasts and make some clips from them. And I'll share those clips, and then I'll share my thoughts. And I'll let you know what's going on in the world of Mike. All right. So the first thing is, guys, don't tell people on the uh, live stream where you are or where you're going. That's stupid. Always leave yourself some room for wiggling. Practice operational security. OPSEC. Yep. So, I have been working on installing Haskell. And this might be boring to you, so just fast forward about 10 minutes or skip to the next segment. I don't know how the players work. So we're going to talk about a little bit, some details about Haskell and what I'm learning. So first of all, I have spent time on Haskell before, and I've learned some basics. But um, some key points that I have been missing are the um, the approach or the um, the viewpoint of how we're going to think about things, meaning. What is the perspective of the execution for Haskell and the type system? We talked about that in the last episode. My perspective is going to be, we're going to run the interpreter. We're gonna run the compiler as part of the program. So installing a compiler, uh, it's gonna cost you at least a gigabyte or more of data lots of memory and all these extra libraries are going to cost you 
and the executables in Haskell are quite large. Um, I'm not sure if they actually embed the entire compiler, but it's quite the system. So it's not for small things. But, uh, and I have to say, I don't know enough about it, but um, I'm going to declare my ignorance. And we're going to be done with that, and I'll tell you what I learned, and that's all we got. <clears throat> so, I'm going to approach this system from the idea that I'm going to be reading in data, and um, parsing data, and instantiating statements. But then, see, this is where we get into this whole trickery of multiple levels. Once you have data, you're going to want to turn that into types again. So I'll just say we've got multiple layers of <clears throat> systems where one system, one system's data is another data system's type. And... Um, There might be a way to do that in Haskell, and we're going to find out. So the one thing I have learned is you can switch over the data and parse it. So you can interpret that data and then create new types or instantiate types once they're in the compiler. But you still have to be able to add those types into the compiler. So, I don't know how that works. There's some things like template Haskell, which will allow you to create types from types or expand on types using some kind of metaprogramming. But I don't know how much of that will allow you to take a data piece of data and turn that into a type. So, until I know how to do that, we're going to generate the code and use the compiler uh, <clears throat> and then compile that new code into the system. So we're going to have an operation of, we have some types, we create some instances of that, and those instances will define new types by generating code and compiling that in and then iterating over the data and instantiating those types so let's talk about that and this might be the repetition of too many times the word type so let's go over it <clears throat> let's see you have an array with elements and every element in your array you want to create let's say some data type some constructor so let's start with the idea of a constructor in Haskell a constructor is a name with a capital letter 
it's a function. When you call it, it will return a new type. It will return a type. So you say data, some type name equals, and then this constructor or pipe, that constructor. And let's say there's no parameters to them, but just enum. So you say data colors with a capital C equals red with a capital R, pipe, blue. So there you go. You have red and blue. You have two different constructors for the type color. And then you can just say, I don't know, X equals red. And that will create an instance of the type color with constructor red. Make sense? So you're just basically creating an object of a type. Now, <clears throat> what I'm getting at now is that we would have a string. So I could say, I create a class, so I could say data, um, table type, or a SQL table name, right? Or SQL table equals uh, table name, and then parameter of a uh, So then I can use a curly brace and I could say uh, table name, lowercase, colon, colon, string, and then curly, close curly brace. So that's going to create a, a record structure, let's say a SQL table, that has a field called table name. Okay? So basically we're creating a string inside of a uh, type. So now... Let's say I want to iterate over those tables and for each table, create a new type. Okay. So for every instance of the name, a table name, I want to create, let's say, an array well, I guess I'd have an array of table names objects and for each of them I'd want to I guess convert the uh, table name into some type name so I would say like my apps tables equals table name a table name B table name C right So that's what I'm getting at here, is I'm going to go from a string to a type. Now once I have that type defined, I can create a constructor or a function that will take a string name and look up that type, like a parser. But I don't, I don't know how to create types directly. I guess there's some meta-level programming that we could do to create types another metal level program to instantiate them. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> it's possible, but I want to stick to some simple stuff here. I guess we could use temp template Haskell to do that as well, but uh, so this is kind of what I'm getting at 
to go from string to to go from a string to a type to a new type okay boy that's me stumbling on this idea for 10 minutes I don't know who's going to want to listen to that you got to have some courage to share shit like this let me tell you or some disregard for other people's time I don't know I don't disregard other people's time I'm struggling through this stuff and um, maybe someone would benefit from it maybe not but I'm kind of committed to this project and um, <clears throat> I'm gonna see it through even if some things I don't really think are the best I guess I could just delete it and re-record it. But that would be betraying the stream of random ideals, of randomness. Boy, we are caught in some indecision now. Some thought process. Some value calls. It's a turning point in life. A moment of truth. So I guess we're taking this and we're turning it to something else. So yeah, get back to this question. So we're going to have a layered system where we revisit the data Observe it, and based on those observations, we're going to create some statistical information about it. And then we're going to observe that and try and pin it down, and then go to the next level. And we're going to expand on layer by layer of that data until we have visited the end of it. So let's say it's the traversal and statistical modeling in some kind of supervised manner.
I guess that's what we're getting into. Now, I don't know enough about statistics either. I think it's Bayes, Bayesian. say, well, things that have happened before will happen again. What's the probability of <clears throat> the sun coming up? And what's the prob well, and then we go into what's the probability of that given this. So I guess we're just modeling the probabilities of things. And the joint probabilities, like let's say layer one, the probabilities of elements of layer one and then we go and we uh, look at layer two like given an element in layer one what's the next step and we look at layer two and we continue constructing that out so we create switches and ifs and cases and matches for these different probabilities in different cases that we have seen so like a decision tree overfitting an overfitting of the data and then we get to the point where we well once you have enough data about it what what's the next step reducing it <sighs> yeah kind of lost here kids we are going to think about this and we will get back to you when we know more now the good thing about using segments to construct my episode is that if I label these ep these segments properly, I can then rearrange them into future episodes. So I really like that idea. Um, <clears throat> so I'm thinking maybe one tool that I could build um, is the segment creator so let's talk about a segment creator so let's say we would uh, look for groups of words so we would do voice to text and then we would look for groups of words that are related or reoccurring now, I'm also thinking maybe we don't even need to do a voice to text. Um, 
maybe a segment creator could just look for the sounds and do some kind of unsupervised learning. So it would look for long pauses, for example, and break that up, but would also look for a sound signature of a word. Um, given a speaker, we might not know what the word is, but we might be able to recognize similar sound signatures and um, group them together. We might um, look for introductions or common beginnings or ends to segments. We might have a training program to feed it a segment and say, oh, well, this is what a normal segment looks like. And we could just start a segment with a name and a title and um, <clears throat> end it with a certain segment tag that could also be removed at the end, like a header and the footer. So maybe I'll just start with, that's the beginning of a segment and this is the end of a segment. Um, or some type of regularity that we could look for. Yeah, so maybe I can create a voice model, an unsupervised voice model of my recordings and first recognize my voice and then uh, look for common sounds. <clears throat> Even without knowing what those are. That's kind of an interesting idea. All right. So that's the end of the segment on the idea of creating a machine learning application to recognize segments from a stream and cut them up and also be able to reorder and find similar segments and group them together. All right. Okay. So now we're going to go over the idea that we talked about in the segment Lost in Thought, in the first major segment. And we're going to reflect over that idea a little bit more. So, we collect the statistical information of symbols that are reoccurring and getting ever more complicated. Language. Now, the big thing is <clears throat> first of all or there's different perspectives on things one is you've got a body of work that has some structure to it and you're learning to recognize that structure the second is you have a new work that you want to understand. So I'm talking about understanding things in a body of work. 
Okay. So, a lot of what we're doing, what I've been doing, is trying to extract information, and let's just call it statistical information, about existing programs, an existing program and trying to get behind what the author might have been thinking and model that. So what are we doing? We're observing existing code and we are creating new models to try and better understand what the author's intent was, or we're constructing a new model that represents our understanding of what that person was doing. Now we can collect statistics of all kinds, but unless we look at them, um, unless we present them to a human, those statistics are not really going to be super useful. So if a tree falls over in the woods and no one's there to see it, you know, does anyone hear it? <clears throat> and that gets um, into some difficult things. Like you could say that a body of text contains all the statistical information inside of it already. Just by the very nature of it existing, it embodies all permutations of itself, right? So we can get into the idea that um, given a graph or just given a bunch of uh, numbers, are the bytes of a program that the um, given the text of a word of a, of a book given the sound of a speech the words in your ears okay <clears throat> the utterances of a brain, the output of some neural network or something, just some sound. That there's some type of statistics, some kind of data embedded in there. So, From a mathematical point of view, we can conceive of things that are much more complicated that cannot be calculated. We can say quickly and easily, you know, um, 
whatever, a Google Goldplex or something. Some humongous number. So we can represent some humongous numbers or some enormous amounts of computation that um, are not easily done. Right? So we have symbolic representations of computation. We can say, you know, all the relationship of every character in a document to every other character. Or the relationship of every bit in a digital document to every other bit, right? So if you've got a megabyte of data, of text, and you want to just look at all the bits and how every bit relates to every other bit, right? <clears throat> and you want to study that. That is a crazy idea, right? You've got bits that follow other bits and sequences. You've got bits that make up integers or letters, characters. You've got new lines and they'll start grouping this stuff together. So this gets into the whole theory of structuralism where <clears throat> there's like one or two different ways to interpret something. And then when we get into the idea of the winner writes history and the theories of domination, right? theories of domination where the one right answer or the one way to interpret these bites the one correct answer is given by the teacher right given by the state determines your whole life like learning that one answer right could make you or break you Knowing the password would be, are you on the team or not on the team? Are you going to be shot or are you going to be saved? So those are the meanings inside of a context. And I think that's where we're kind of going here is that there's more to interpretation than just rules and things like that. There's actual context. There's a social context. And I hate to say it, there's some kind of domination 
some kind of expressed bias or expressed um, control that we see. <clears throat> and that's what we're kind of getting into now. When we talked last week about the um, passwords and the encryption function and the security function, and we talked about, you know, what is the purpose of something? Well, that's kind of taking it out of the system. So eventually we're going to take, we're going to exit the system, right? We're going to exit our logical system eventually. And I think that's what Sasur was avoiding. He was getting locked into his thought process, into the logical thought process, into the symbolic thought process. But he didn't want to exit. So we're going to just say, simply, we have a function, and that function is the modeling of reality, and it takes as input some data, and it produces its output some model, some degree of confidence, in a given time. Now, some of those functions never return, or time out. So Sassur, let's say, was timing out. He was getting into the infinite feedback loop. Right? He didn't want to return or give up and we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of symbols I mean this is just what this is my understanding as of from an outsider I haven't actually read him but from the lady's description from yesterday's podcast so And that's it. We have a certain time on this planet, and we have certain chances to observe reality, to model it, to understand it, to share those models. <clears throat> and it's all within some kind of closed system. Now this is where I get into, I think we're going to end this segment and call it the, um, the modeling function. And then we're going to continue with another segment. This is the beginning of the segment where I'm going to talk about Xbox 360 Minecraft. 
So there was an intuition I had where I wanted to talk about Xbox. And it's the scarcity. The theory of scarcity. So let me put you in a situation where you're in Xbox, in Minecraft, you're either in the cave, at the bottom of the um, cave, where you're far away from wood. And wood is an essential item that you need in caves. So if you have wood, you can basically, and food, you can basically do anything you need. But it runs out. So inside of the cave system, you only have so much time. And I guess you can collect mushrooms as food. And I guess you could eat zombie flesh as food. But you can't cook it and you're going to get sick. So... <clears throat> You've only got so much time in the cave before you run out of resources and have to return to the surface. And once you run out of resources, you can't do pickaxing, you can't create torches. You can use a flint and steel, which is available in the caves, to set things on fire temporarily, but that will also run out. When you run out of flint and steel, you run out of steel or iron, you run out of iron. Um, the only thing left you would have would be a lava bucket. So you could pour lava and light things up. But you're not going to have a pickaxe anymore if you run out to direct it. <clears throat> so that's the, um, the theory of scarcity there. And then when you're on the surface, you have trees, but to cut those trees, you need an axe. I mean, cut them quickly. And if you have a stone pickaxe, you'd need stone from the ground. So there's a real dynamic here. And also what's also great about the scarcity is like every block counts and moving around it's a function of finding the right blocks to walk on or to set them up. And it's a practice in planning. And you have to have a scarcity mindset in, in Minecraft. <clears throat> so that's what I was trying to express earlier. And I couldn't really get it out, but I've been thinking about it. Uh, <clears throat> and also it's like an open world game where you get to pick your own adventures. You get to pick what you want to do. And you get to set your own goals. And that's what's also greatly great fun about it. So I, um, my son was bored with normal Minecraft. And he always wanted to install mods. Because that's what people were telling him about. So I finally I found a video with 40 things you can do in Minecraft. Um, if you're bored. And um, it was incredible. And they were doing amazing things with vanilla Minecraft. Where... You wouldn't believe all the things you can do. <clears throat> One was a was a uh, a roller coaster made out of um, minecarts. That was pretty damn cool. So, and he was inspired 
And I realized that also, you know, he was bored with doing the same thing over and over again. He wanted new challenges and wanted new experiences that he could experience through the lens of Minecraft, through that virtual persona, right? That simplified interface. And um, it is quite addictive and interesting to set up these challenges and to have the space and time to do them. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to share with you about Minecraft. Okay, so everyone's been talking about this great reset. So we're going to um, next cut over to that. And I'm, um, I'm going to try a new method of producing today. Because this is an experimental media podcast. Art. Um, <clears throat> we're going to... We're going to um, this is whole World Economic Forum video, one hour, which I'm going to listen to and I'm going to clip. So I downloaded New Pipe, which is the YouTube downloader, and New Pipe we're going to use to download the audio of this thing, and then we're going to load it into this ringtone maker for clipping. I'm going to attempt and make some usable clips directly from the audio file that I downloaded. So that's what we're going to be coming up with. Um, so please hold while I get that all ready. So he's saying in the Great Reset that the COVID crisis will set us back to the economic level of 1921. So global debt is currently at um, 255 trillion. So let's say, yeah. And uh, we're adding in 10 trillion on top of that. So <clears throat> we're talking about uh, is it 5%, less than 5% increase in total debt from COVID, which is still quite a lot. Um, we'd actually have to look at the rate of debt increase over time um, to see if that's a really significant... Um, we actually have to look at a debt, a debt chart. World debt chart. Let's look. Okay. Okay. So if I look at this debt chart, um, it shows us. And if you put it in dollars, it's also, you know, a, um, a question of how do you measure it in dollars because the dollar fluctuates. So, you know, it's not really a, um, 
So in 2010, we were at 210 trillion. Then it went up to 230 trillion in 2014. Global public debt. Nepal. Here's the global debt monitor. Here we go. 2011, we were at 200. And now we're at 250. So we we added in since 2011. We actually have to look at an earlier time. Global debt to GDP. Okay. So in 1983, we were at 120%. And then 2010, we went to 210, 200% of global debt ratio. Nineteen fifty. Here we go. History of debt. Now I found a good link, and I'll put that in the. Um, I'll have to put that in the show. <clears throat> and there's a good chart on here. The IMF blog, which gives us the. Um, In 1950, we were at 100. Then, um, in 1980, 120. And 1986, we went up to 180. With 1995 going up to 180. And it kept on rising linearly ever since, all the way to 220 in 2016. So I guess this comes with the Reaganomics and the debt of the Cold War. Um, it's quite the uh, quite the thing. I'll put this in the uh, show notes, I guess. Let's see if we can get this back to the uh, recording. And look at the debt which we are uh, loading uh, on our shoulders. Uh, the world was already indebted at an amount of over 300% of GDP. Now, um, the, the rescue programs of the governments represent another $10 trillion, which um, will be added to our debt load and will have to be in some way uh, be repaid by future generations. I'm also, of course... So basically, he's defining the Great Reset. Was it restrain, the new normal, and then reset? So those are the three phases of the COVID. And basically, this whole Great Reset is talking about how they want to deal with the world. How, how does the IMF or the World Economic Forum, how are they going to get paid back all this money that they've lent us? Um, you know, what's the plan for paying that all back? And this is kind of like um, the clearing system where they pay war reparations back to. Um, there's this like the clearing house where they're paying war reparations back. Uh, from Germany to England or whatever, war debt, 
so I guess this is kind of what is talking about now where um, the uh, world economic leaders want to see some kind of plan for how we're going to pay they're going to pay back how we're going to pay back all this debt and finally the reset which means to define and to design the strategies um, which uh, should lead us uh, in the after-corona phase. Um, what is the objective? So he's talking about everything is going to be digitalized that will be digitalized because of COVID. And it's an extreme power grab for the digital companies. But he says you have to um, <clears throat> be aware of the humanitarian aspects of this. So this is a good segue now to talk about what my friend Radon is doing in Albania. And he's trying to organize a conference that's going to be digital, an online one, this summer. And I'm going to uh, tell you about it. But first we're going to play this clip from the reset, and then we're going to stream of random switch to a different topic on the, um, <clears throat> the privacy aspects and the digital aspects of the Great Reset. Number three, and that's a major part also of the book, um, because you know, I, I published four years ago the book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, all those technologies are very much advanced now by COVID. Uh, everything will be digitalized, which can be digitalized. Um, so uh, how can we use the technologies to address the challenges, but at the same time, make sure that we create a, the necessary ethical, uh, human-oriented uh, principles around those technologies. Some... So now I'm going to read you from this website um, that Redon sent me. The dog food. I want to know about the dog food right on. So it's uh, forum.openlabs.cc slash Balkan minus floss, F-L-O-S-S-T-I-V-A-L minus 2020 slash 2212. <clears throat> so I'll just read you the whole thing right off of it. So, Balkan Flostival, Flostival 2020 from Mrs. Uka. Hello, everybody. We are super happy to introduce Balkan Flostival, our latest initiative to promote software freedom, open source software, online privacy, open data, and open knowledge in the region, even during the COVID-19 crisis. What is Balkan Flostival? It is an event that will take place this year for the first time completely in the form of an online conference to promote software freedom, blah, 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 in the Balkan region. The idea is initiated by Open Labs Hackerspace and every organization in the region is invited to join forces with us and keep spreading awareness and knowledge for all. Well, what if I'm not in the region? I'll join you anyway. Whew. Why and how to join? Well, it looks like they got some formatting errors here. I'll have to send that to them. You can become a partner host. So, cha 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 cha.
Let's continue reading. You can become a partner host. Okay, this event is new for us too. We have a plan and the goodwill, but not everything is crystal, crystal clear. Please, if you want to take over this challenge with this, don't hes hesitate in joining the organization team. The organizing team. We will discuss, plan, and organize everything together, exchange experiences and ideas. Our mutual aim is sharing floss knowledge and skills, and we can do it better together. This would be an opportunity to bring many small Balkan events into one comprehensive conference for all. Interested? Shoot us an email at info at openlabs.cc. Notice this is an invitation for all Balkan individuals, organizations, universities, publicly funded institutions and companies agreeing to the following rules. Rule number one, you will use open source software for activities. Rule number two, your focus is free. Open source software, hardware, online privacy, freedom of expression, open knowledge and open data. But what if you focus? Well, good. You respect the code of conducts. All of the outcomes recorded audio and video of the Flostable are published in permissive license and you are dog fooding, which means you are using all free Believe your open source infrastructure during the activities. The sooner we have a team ready to go, the sooner we'll be able to decide on the dates, discuss tasks and responsibilities, get started, add your item. Why did we come up with this idea? Here's a touch of storytelling. The original idea of the festival was initiated from the cancellation of OSCAL, the in-person event about software freedom in Tirana and other events in the region such as SFK during the COVID crisis and safety measures taken globally. As things didn't go exactly for a better new era and the event organizing and knowledge sharing started taking place, the online conferencing, a new experience, creative safe solution. The Balkan Flostival would be a collaborative event of open source promoters in the region to deliver for the first time a single online conference to a larger non-border audience. Think of the Balkan Flostival like a Balkan open source alliance. We're calling all organizations and the free Libra source communities in the region to join us to promoting and shaping the first festival together. We are free Libra open source contributors and have the same goals and face the same challenges. Let's work together creating a transnational network of solidarity, knowledge sharing, and resistance with each other for a future where free Libra open source software, the right to online privacy and open data are the standard. Hashtag, well, so, hashtag, I guess they're missing some markdown formats here. Achieving Things Together, Jenna's plan will be an online gathering of free Libra software communities. Phils from all around the world are invited to participate. Not limited to workshops, presentations, late night fire tried chats, basically any format that you participate. End of the year, maybe the first, second week of December. Final date's not decided. What do you think? Cheers from the hot burning summer of Tirana, Sidorella. Okay, Sidorella. I love it. I'm all in. And we, uh, I also called for something like this. Um, and uh, I agree. We should do that. So, um, where was I? So the... Um, there's a group, osconference.org, that Mr. Satish is working on. I'm going to send that over to him for setting up some conferences. And I have been thinking about doing something local, so I will be in touch. So in this next segment, 
He's going to talk about greater um, global cooperation is needed because of COVID and the interdependencies between countries and working together. And I do agree we should work together and there is an interdependency. <clears throat> but um, the question I have is how will that actually work? And what does that working together mean? And, and uh, there's a lot of scary stuff that, hap that could happen, you know, how, what are the downsides of that working together? So, lots of different questions here. <clears throat> and we're going to find out more as we go. Uh, Ed, uh, at last, uh, the need for much stronger global cooperation. Uh, COVID has shown us that we are globally interdependent. And I think it's a wake-up call uh, to work in the future together uh, to address all the consequences and to create a reset in our economic, social, ecological thinking. Thank so, in the next clip, he's going to say that the COVID has accelerated existing risks. So, whatever risks that we thought were there before, it's just making them worse, right? Like if you have a supply chain problem, well, now your supply chain problem is worse. If you have a uh, IT problem, well, you know what? Now your IT problems are even worse, right? And if you're lacking organization, I guess, well, now your organizational problems are worse. And what is apparent already from the uh, COVID pandemic is that um, it has acted as an accelerator of existing risks. So seeing that we're already uh, emerging um, a few a few years ago are now happening at a much faster pace than used to be the case. Okay, now this is going to be interesting. So <clears throat> he talks about these $10 trillion that will be earmarked and conditional upon greening the economy so that the COVID has implemented some of the green things that have been wanted for a long time. I mean, we saw the reduction in travel and flying and all that. And <clears throat> now they're saying that um, this money that's been promised as relief will be made conditional upon those green things. So, Maybe we could just say that um, by staying home in the crisis, we're earning carbon credits. And by dying, you're earning even more carbon credits. You know, you're helping the uh, planet and finally doing what's needed to uh, improve the um, environment. So keep it up. The environment, surprisingly, might be uh, one of the big um, winners from the pandemic, from the reasons that um, Professor Schwab just, just mentioned, um, the pandemic has made all the more vivid the critical importance of natural assets. And it has made clear, for example, that there is a correlation between the 
um, infection rate and, uh, and air pollution. So as a result, we're now paying much more attention to um, the natural assets um, that are um, impacting uh, our, our life. And it is already clear that the 10 trillion um, of um, fiscal support that have been announced worldwide um, to deal with the pandemic, a significant portion of that, of this 10 trillion, will be um, conditional upon making the economy greener. Um, and in that respect, uh, Europe is very much at the forefront. Um, technology. Okay, so this next clip, she'll talk about the, um, basically she's going to say, and I'm skipping, I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff. Um, they're going to, um, push finally for all the things that they've always wanted to do. And I agree with a bunch of these things. You know, they sound great. Diversity and inclusion. Um, I, the one thing that I'm kind of getting hung up on is this stakeholder versus shareholder economy that they're pushing for. And basically saying that the shareholders are looking for short-term profits and the stakeholders are looking for long-term investment and that they're moving away from a shareholder to a stakeholder economy. So, <clears throat> I think that's actually something, I mean, it all sounds very good to me um, until it actually gets in your face. It might be great. And they're talking about setting up a new dashboard, a new tools, a new North Star for guiding the economy into this new world that they're envisioning. Kind of sounds like Planwirtschaft to me. It's like, okay, we're going to plan this thing out. Somehow they're going to try and reorient the economy. Um, but I wonder how they're going to do it. They said they're going to make all of this stuff conditional on, you know, their money is going to be conditional upon all these things. So it kind of sounds like authoritarianism to me. But uh, we will see. Bring together new ideas in these spaces. And again, some of these have been perhaps um, in the fringes of the academic conversation already. What we now need to do is bring those ideas to the fore because very much in the spirit of the Great Reset, this is the moment where we can proactively shape the economy that we want in the future. So that's... Okay, guys, I'm getting a little tired of this Great Reset. And I just wanted to tell you about what I've been working on here on my phone so I have this mp3 cutter and ringtone maker tool that I installed um, let's see app info <clears throat> it says uh, let's see if I can find the Google Play information on it from inshot.inc and um, it contains ads good morning but uh, it's pretty good and um, <clears throat> so basically I have, uh, I used NewPipe to download the audio file, convert it to audio. And then I opened it up in this MP3 cutter and ringtone maker. And then I can listen to the episode, I can zoom in and I can cut out snippets and then share them um, to uh, anchor.fm. And then I can upload them there directly and then I'm recording these clips directly in Anchor on top. So I'm able to do this one clip at a time with short breaks. 
and uh, it's working out pretty good. So um, I kind of like this workflow. I think it's working for me. And I hope the audio quality is good enough. And um, I'm going to be switching topics now. I'm going to just take a little break and maybe listen to the whole thing. But um, I think we have an idea now of what the Great Reset is. And I encourage you to listen to them in total. I didn't clip everything about the, uh, the new North Star. But at least I have a concept of what they're talking about. And I just wonder who these people are and how they're able to, um, to make such uh, grand sweeping plans. Uh, but they look like they're the guys who got the money. Yeah. So now we're going to go back to the ideas in Haskell and theta types. And this is great because, you know, I can, um, I can record these segments and they're separate. As long as I tag them, I can then rearrange them and just make a Haskell uh, program or I can delete segments that are boring and, you know, I can edit this stuff after the fact. Um, <clears throat> So that's all good. Um, so what are we talking about here, kids? Well, I keep on getting back to the concept that I can't quite grasp totally. You know, what is a type and what do we know about it? And when does something become a type and when is it not yet a type and um, and that's what I'm looking for is a library like a user runtime library that will give me all the types in Haskell or all the types that I need but in an efficient uh, let's say data space level where I can define types and all the different funny rules with them. Um, I can define the code that I need. So this is the question of code. Let's say a subset of the language at runtime and then do some kind of inference or checking or reuse these type checking rules. Um, on my data, right? So convert the data to types and then check it. So raise things up a level and bless them with predicates, right? So when will the data become blessed? When will the data be, you know, taken out of the wor real world and brought into the world of types? <sighs> These are some deep philosophical questions, people. And um, I don't know the answer to them yet, but I'm thinking about them and I'm going to be thinking about them for a little bit and then I'll update you with some more on this stream of random. And you can hit me up on chat, on Telegram. You can hit me up on Twitter. This episode is live. And um, yeah, you can jump in anytime. Give me a call. Leave me a voicemail and join my show. All right. All right, so I had a little break, got something to drink, and I'm heading back home. Looks like there's another two hours of walk 
So this is going to be quite the trek today. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, it looks like there's some rudimentary dynamic typing available in Haskell. <coughs> but I don't see uh, what I'm looking for like full-fledged definition of new types but that's okay because we can just run the Haskell interpreter as we need it and add it line by line or file by file so um, I'm thinking we're going to get, continue down this path of learning. And um, you may ask yourself, why is that even interesting? Why am I talking about it? But I don't think so many people are listening to me anyway. So I'm going to wrap this up and have a great day. Peace out. The Boil Game. I called the next clip where Boyle um, creates a tabletop air pump experiment and does a whole number of experiments. He's changing the game. He's increasing the rapidity of the experiment. He's allowing for faster iteration, a smaller, faster loop, a less experiment, a less expensive experiment, a faster feedback loop. A, um, a better way to propagate memes. So he's creating a new environment for the memes to thrive and live in or something to observe. Um, I mean, the memes live in the mind, but the mind will be presented with new information faster and quicker and be able to jump from one person to the other and mutate faster and be validated or invalidated. So the game, the game of hypotheses and proof, which is the meme um, mutation, the scientific process, that will become faster. Um, so let's let's hear it for Boyle.